You're listening to 3CR Radio. And we pay our respects to Indigenous Elders, past, present and emerging. 3CR broadcasts from the stolen lands of the Kulin Nation. Sovereignty was never ceded in this country. 3CR Well, Mitch Hibbins is a queer Wiradjuri person who lives in Nam, otherwise known as Melbourne. And Mitch begins that interview by describing the country where his mob hails from. James, I um, hail from uh, the Wiradjuri Nation. Um, I grew up in a little town called Tumut, which is kind of in the southeastern corner um, uh, of Wiradjuri country and belong to, I guess, a, a very large <laughs> Aboriginal family um, with connections all over New South Wales and is a place that uh, I call home very much so. I'm speaking from you t- today uh, from Wiradjuri country. Um, I'm in Albury-Wodonga, which is also just on the uh, on the borders of, uh, of Wiradjuri country, and it's a place that uh, I think at a time like now, I'm quite glad to be here and, and being able to be grounded with my community. Yes, it's been a monumental few weeks globally and in Australia as well in relation to highlighting the terrible injustices towards Indigenous people, Aboriginal people in this country. How does what has happened kind of, I guess, further foster that connection that you have with country? Can you tell us about that emotional connection at this time? Yeah, look, I think um, one of the most, uh, I guess, significant things for me at this time is is being able to be surrounded, um, even, you know, as we kind of uh, emerge from uh, the pandemic, but being able to be surrounded with my people and my community, but also significant places that um, I can see um, the hills, the mountains, the trees, um, all these different things that allow me to to feel um, very whole, I suppose, and my, my sense of belonging, um, which is really important to feel strong, uh, I, I suppose, um, when facing, um, I guess, the day in, day out, year after year challenges of uh, racial violence, um, uh, police violence, all these different uh, things that um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people um, have been encountering for the last 232 years. So whilst, um, yeah, these things are uh, in terms of what is happening globally and our response to it uh, in terms of uh, protests and, and rallies around the nation um, may seem to some eyes to be relatively new, um, this has been something that our ancestors, our families and our communities have been facing um, for 232 years. You must have grown up with uh, terrible stories and also full-on experiences of systemic racism. Can you tell us a little bit about, about your backstory? Yeah, look, I, I think I have to preface it that, um, you know, my, my experiences whilst I've had experienced racism, discrimination, um, I'm a light-skinned Aboriginal person and so my uh, experiences can only be seen through that worldview. Um, and often uh, they're not as overt that my uh, darker skin brothers and cousins and sisters and all those people um, with darker skin experience. Um, for example, um, I've witnessed it when I've been with dark skin family members as a child I've, uh, in, a, in a supermarket in the small town that I'm from with my mother and my auntie. My auntie in particular is very dark skin and we kept on getting shuffled to the back of the line. And as a, as a seven or eight-year-old, you're thinking, why, why are we waiting so long? Um, and, and it's only, I guess, with the benefit of, of growing up and, and being able to kind of process those things a little bit more deeply that I've realised, you know, in a small town in the, you know, in the late 90s, 
um, that was a normal occurrence for, for my mum and, and her family. Um, and my own experiences, I guess, have been uh, let, no, no less, uh, I guess, diminishing them, but different. It's the microaggressions. It's the, the diminishing your sense of identity. I mean, every um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander person has similar stories, James, about, you know, particularly – uh, the uh, the good old well you don't look Aboriginal or you don't sound you're too articulate all those kind of cliches that we hear and and for most black fellas, um you know once you've heard it one time you've heard it a million times and we develop I suppose particular set of responses to to move ourselves forward because it's it's a constant um, barrage of that kind of stuff. Can you tell us a bit about those responses? Yeah, look, I mean, one of my my favourite one. It depends on the context, James. Is that uh, um, you know I often get, uh, particularly from people who may seem to label themselves as progressives, um, who like to kind of quantify my blackness into uh, percentages or or how much, what part. And look, my usual response is uh, either to give them the finger that part of me is <laughs> the flick them the middle finger that part of me is black. Um, because there's no point in that, you know, educating, uh, that those things are outdated. We have an education system in this country that is supposed to be, you know, from primary school, um, and through to universities now embedding, um, Indigenous perspectives into curriculum. Um, and if I'm still having to have those conversations around, um, that we don't talk about, uh, blood quantums and the caste system, as uh, how you identify as an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander person, then I really don't have time to educate on how wrong that is. I think that that is up to uh, the individual to go um, and do their own homework. I mean, one of the things that I've been think I often say as well to, to people, James, is that, you know, when, for example, when we have a headache or we have some ailment that we can't quite figure out, um, we often go turn to Dr. Google and put in something in a search engine. It's no different with racism and educating yourself. People need to go and do their own research. Type into Google, how can I be anti-racist? Because, you know, black people, indigenous people, brown people, people of colour in this country, we're exhausted. We don't have, I guess, <laughs> we don't have the capacity and the bandwidth to constantly keep doing this because we're, we're seeing our people, you know, unfairly treated by the, this so-called justice system. Um, we're seeing deaths that don't, you know, 437 Aboriginal deaths in custody now, like nothing, no police convictions whatsoever. So I think, you know, in answering your question, um, my responses, I guess, I, I admittedly have over the years, I've probably, my tolerance has diminished because I'm hearing the same, same old things and no growth from the people that I'm engaging with. So I've got to kind of put a stop to it and say, do your own education. Happy to have a conversation, but you've got to come to the come to the table with having done some homework. Why do you think that growth is so hard for people? Is it because the racism is just so monumental that it seems like nothing can shift it? Um, I think it's just so ingrained in the Australian psyche about the way that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people um, and have been excluded from the narrative of this history of this country. 
And I think until there's true reckoning with what this history is, and that includes the violence, the colonial violence of the frontier wars, then we're not going to shift past and we're not going to get growth. Of course, there's enormous things that this country needs to do around constitutional reform, engaging in treaty processes as a part of that, um, you know, having a process or, a, a, you know, working with communities and nations um, around what reparations might look like. These are big things, but they're possible. And I don't think we're going to be able to get to that point until we have, uh, I guess, our, an education system that is uh, teaching a true and accurate reflection of uh, the history of this country from the point of invasion. But also before, there is so much that white Australia can be proud of in, in, in terms of uh, living on our land and being able to feel like a sense of belonging. Um, there's so much richness that Australians um, more broadly could appreciate and also Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people. We have such value in our society and unfortunately um, are not able to be seen in that way. We're seen as othered in our own country. Um, so we're not going to see the growth until there's a respect. And from that, uh, I suppose we can begin to have, a, a, I guess, a, a partnership and working, working forward together. You mentioned reparations. Do you have any thoughts on what they should look like? <sighs> Uh, look, to be honest, there are people much, much cleverer than I who have given this a great deal of thought. Um, you know, in the 1970s, Uncle Robbie Thorpe um, pioneered the pay the rent um, scheme um, in Fitzroy. Um, and, I, you know, from this year, that has kind of been resurrected by the Warriors of the Aboriginal Resistance um, in Melbourne or NAM. Um, there, there are ways to do that. There's also on the other school of, um, you know, extensive work that has been done as part of the Uluru Statement from the heart and constitutional reforms and this, the kind of process and sequence that that outlines into working towards, you know, reaching different schemes for reparation as, as an endpoint, I would think. But no, as an individual, I, I, I think um, there are small ways that, uh, you know, people can contribute to local communities and organisations um, because this is a, you know, a, a, I guess a national reparation scheme is something that's enormous and it's something that um, maybe, um, you know, what current events show us, the majority of the country isn't ready to even um, to come to terms with. So maybe... Um, and, you know, I'm not one for kind of looking at, um, you know, half-baked measures, but there are so many things that people can do right now to support Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander causes, and not only in response to events like deaths in custody, but on on the daily. Uh, you know, JIRA, for example, um, based in NAM as well, but having, a, you know, a footprint across, um, across Victoria, is an incredible example of um, an, an Aboriginal-led organisation that is working against family prevention, uh, the prevention of family violence, you can donate to them. And it's not, uh, you know, it's a sequence of different things, James. I think um, people think that they pay their money and then that kind of absolves or dissuades them of having any responsibility to do anything further. It's a sequence of things. You can also you can support um, causes financially if you have the capacity to do that. But it's also about, you know, respecting country. It's about learning to get to know the community and work with them um, on the place that you live on. 
Um, it's those things, those little steps will then allow the momentum, I suppose, to have the conversations um, as a nation about these bigger uh, schemes such as, as reparations that uh, need to be paid to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. You're listening to an extended interview with Mitch Hibbins on Community Radio 3CRs in your face. First and foremost, the place that we all live on, um, you know, now known as Australia, is Aboriginal land. We have a responsibility as people who live on um, that country of, ver- of, the, of the different nations that make up um, this landmass to get to know about where we live. What is important to the local community? What are the issues there? What, uh, how can you help as an individual through volunteering, through using, uh, I guess, uh, you know, your own networks and relationships with your, your own family to educate them? We've all got, you know, I've got um, members of my family um, on my father's side who is white who I've got to educate um, or, or cut off. They're, you know, there's, there's so much that we have to do encountering racial bias um, uh, in our own circles that we move in is is a responsibility we can't just i was having a conversation with someone this morning who saw something that one of their friends had written on on facebook um which was incredibly racist and they're like oh gosh i'm just going to block and delete them now that's not the thing that i think for a black or indigenous person yes you block and delete because you haven't got the time to engage or the emotional bandwidth at this particular time to to have to do that kind of work but for allies that's that's your work. That's that's where you step in and say, okay, I'm going to take this on. I'm going to attempt to educate this person. Here is what I know, and here how I can bring them to some place where they can um, have a conversation about how that particular comment is is incredibly offensive or something like that. It's about doing the work, I suppose. Paying the money is part of it, but being an ally is a twenty four seven, three sixty five you know, days a year um, thing. It's not something that you just do um, every so often. Just in relation to social media and apps, as a, as a gay Aboriginal man, do you encounter much racism on the, on the gay apps, uh, particularly around sexual racism? Yeah, look, I mean, you only have to talk to any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander person, brown person, black person on da- dating apps or hookup apps like Grindr, and it's incredibly prevalent. I did note that Granda has now um, committed to removing the ethnicity filter, which was one of the main ways that people uh, could obviously filter out um, the undesirable uh, people that they thought were undesirable based on race or if they had a particular fetish based on race, they could actually search for that, which is equally offensive and and, and quite disgusting. Um, Look, yeah, I have countless examples. Um, Mine are very, again, related to being a... Um, cosmetically ambiguous Aboriginal person. So there's a particular type of, you know, racism that comes with that um, type of uh, experience, which is usually based on, again, as I, as we, you know, said at the start of this um, um, conversation, James, it's about like, oh, you don't look it, um, you're, oh, you must be only part or, um, you know, uh, I, you're, you're very attractive, which is then saying, you know, uh, other Aboriginal people aren't. So my experience is based on that. And I have a whole range of strategies that, you know, I have to employ to weed out uh, (laughs) those type of people um, who approach me. It's usually around asking a question about, 
you know, a topical thing. If I was, you know, I'm not currently on um, Grinder at the moment because I'm in the countryside, so it's a little bit quieter out here. <laughs> um, but look, um, I, it would be, uh, what, what are your thoughts around um, the protests at the moment? And then I can, uh, from their response, ascertain whether this is a, a conversation that's going to continue because, yeah, you know, no one wants to be sleeping with racists. Absolutely. What kind of emotions came up for you when you heard about the Black Lives Matters protests in, in Melbourne and Sydney? Uh, and what are your reactions to the criticism of them with the pandemic being used as a device to kind of, you know, undermine them? First and foremost, I just have to acknowledge the incredible Aboriginal women and non-binary um, folk who organised these protests largely across the country. These people are just absolute leaders in our communities, like to pull together such incredible, successful, well-thought-out, well-planned um, mass gatherings in the midst of a pandemic is absolutely incredible and I, and I really want to acknowledge um, their ongoing uh, resistance in organising these events um, in our major cities but also the ones that have occurred in our regional areas as well. Um, I guess I, I, I being I was actually in Tumut, um, which is the small town where I'm from, on the weekend while they were happening, you know, keeping close tabs on things um, via social media. And I was just, I mean, I, I certainly uh, was, I had a couple of mixed emotions. I was, uh, would have, you know, liked to have been um, at the NAM protest um, and seeing just how big and how powerful that was. Um, but I also then, um, I guess, thinking about my own communities and the small town that I was and how, um, you know, there was no, you know, as a family, we, we observed um, the protests and, and made our own, uh, I guess, uh, stand. But um, in, a, you know, a town of 6,000 people, um, there was nothing. There was nothing. And I, I, I was disappointed that um, we didn't um, have a bit of a movement in that particular place. But overwhelmingly, yeah, I was just um, overawed at the sense of uh, momentum that these particular protests um, signalled, um, but also, uh, yeah, I guess that the momentum needs to be maintained day in, day out. Um, in relation to the uh, criticisms that have come from the usual suspects, uh, the right-wing um, nutters who kind of use the you know, public health messaging as, as or the, the public health um, emergency as, as an excuse as to why these were dangerous, I know that um, the, the protest organisers had thought this through very well, had secured extra um, masks and sanitizer and all those types of things, and there's good evidence to suggest that if those uh, the public health measures in terms of so, uh, social distancing, hand washing and masks um, were adhered to, um, that we weren't going to see um, a spike in those type of uh, in COVID transmissions. And it was just an, it's just an excuse by... Um, detractors of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander causes to kind of hijack um, protests and diminish um, the actual power of, of those particular moments. Um, and, again, we saw in Sydney, for example, um, the, the police force actually forced people into confined spaces and, um, you know, forcing them to break those social distancing rules uh, in terms of the 1.5 metres. So the intention for from the... Uh, the protest organisers has always been to maintain community safety um, in a, pr a peaceful way and the police, of course, go out and uh, 
you know, force people to um, gather in confined spaces such as they did at the tram station in, in, in Sydney. So um, I, I say nothing to those kind of, uh, I guess, detractors um, because they're only, they're clutching at straws to try and, uh, I guess, diminish what occurred on the weekend, which is a powerful statement about um, that Aboriginal lives do matter, black lives do matter, and there is more that we need to do in this country. It's alarming New South Wales police uh, seem to risk public health by pushing people into those confined spaces. Uh, the mind boggles as to why they did that and thought they could get away with it without the public, you know, speaking out about it. Well, I, I think they do get away with it. This is just, I guess, the extent of how they are no longer accountable, never have been accountable to the communities that they supposedly serve and protect. Um, they're just a bully force. That's exactly what they are. Um, Aboriginal people have known that for the entirety of the, the existence of the police force in this country and certainly black communities and Indigenous communities around the world um, have similar experiences. We're not surprised. We know that there's no accountability. As we said before, 437 deaths in custody, not one single conviction, um, particularly those um, uh where police have been intimately involved in causing harm to um, an Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander person. Um, we know that this, there's no, uh, I guess, uh, accountability for these people and that's why uh, seeing those images for, for many people uh, is quite shocking, but um, unfortunately um, for, for blackfellas across the continent, it's, it's business as usual when we see that. Um, in, in, I mean, what I mean by that is that we've seen it before. We've seen it firsthand. Um, and unfortunately, well, you know, hopefully that will strike a chord in the collective conscience of Australia to ask more and to, of their police force and, you know, look at how, um, you know, defunding the police service as a viable alternative to the over-policing that occurs in this country against black and brown bodies. You're listening to 3CR Radio. You are indeed on 3CR, in your face in fact with James, and we're chatting with Queer Wiradjuri, Mitch Hibbins. What can we expect, do you think, from more grassroots Indigenous activism uh, here in Australia in the coming weeks? Uh, what, what's the community saying about what might be next and, and, and how can people mobilise around that? Look, I can't speak for what's happening across different um, spaces, but I know that the, the momentum is going to continue. Um, Organising still continues. Um, there's, uh, I guess, um, the within the, the Melbourne community, warriors of the Aboriginal resistance are protesting in different ways and resisting in different ways every single day. So I think one of the best things have allies to do is to follow um, their Facebook page and see how that they can be involved. This is just... You know, again, it's it's business as usual for blackfellas in this country. Yes, there is an opportunity to highlight um, the uh, the injustices that we've been facing um, for two hundred and thirty two years. But conscious that um, you know people's uh, attention span, uh, mainstream Australia's attention span, is quite short when it comes to this stuff. So um, I'm sure that we'll see. Um, a lot of, of uh, campaigning around um, Aboriginal deaths in custody continue as it should and I just would hope that um, and um, allies pay attention to that, don't feel like they can wipe their hands because they went to a protest. Keep on top of, um, of keep your pulse on, uh, your finger on the pulse of, of what's happening through Facebook, through Twitter, through social media, through engaging with your local community and organisations, seeing what they're doing 
um, and seeing how you can assist. That's all I can say. I can't speak for, you know, I'm not going to direct people on how to, um, to do it, but I can only advise follow what the leaders, um, Aboriginal leaders in your community are doing and seek their advice for local, you know, kind of issues that are arising. Do you think the the gay community, for example, is getting better at addressing racism towards Aboriginal people? Uh, do you think we're getting better at doing it within our community or are we kind of in a holding pattern where this just continues and there's no real kind of activism that kind of, you know, shifts it? I don't think that there's been um, improvements. Um, as I, you know, when we were just talking about um, dating apps and things like that, that's, you know, a microcosm of, of our community. And I use that term with some element of um, sarcasm in the sense that um, blackfellas very much haven't been part of the, the gay community for a for a long time because we've been excluded from places and spaces and, and yes, there has been marginal kind of improvement in the way that um, there's been visibility and representation of queer blackfellas in different, um, you know, in different ways through, but overwhelmingly um, I think there's a lot of concern about the, you know, the, the, culpability of of particularly white gay community to kind of, um, you know, continue as they continue. They still, um, you know, uh, are racist online, racist um, in person. You know, when large black groups go to certain gay clubs, there's a particular response by um, white gay men in those spaces. Um, And, you know, they're no different in terms of, you know, being gay doesn't absolve you from being racist. So I think our community, if I use that term um, as a, you know, as an all-encompassing thing, has a lot of work to do around how um, we become anti-racist um, and that's through the same kind of ways of engaging with communities um, of colour, uh, working. You know, I, I can't, in this, I, I've struggled to believe that um, people, and it's, in my mind, people are still have white-only friendship groups. How how can you educate yourself and and also then not use your um, friends who are Aboriginal or people of colour to to be your you know um, your educators? But like, how how are you ever going to see another worldview if you don't educate yourself and address your own racism? I, I mean, I don't have the answers because I find it frustrating to have that conversation. Um, I find that we um, yeah. It's, it's a merry-go-round with this one. Um, people are under the guise that I, as a gay person, have been discriminated against, therefore I am above all, um, uh, I guess, accountability when it comes to my own racist behaviours. It's truly shocking that mob would encounter, you know, white, white racist men at gay venues, but it's not surprising at all. Can you tell us a bit more about how that manifests? It sounds unbelievably traumatic. Again, I, uh, you know, particularly more overt for, for, for dark skinned blackfellas. Like, you know, you know, I've been with groups of blackfellas where we've went to venues, um, and we've been turned away. Um, and yet white people walk in right past us. And it's like, even at that kind of, you know, we're seen as, you know, undesirable. We don't add anything to, um, so these are, those kind of examples are countless and, Many black fellas will have far more um, 
far more detailed um, based on their skin colour, I guess, accounts of how they've been discriminated, seen as objects, seen as fetishised by, um, by, you know, by white men. You know, I only, I had a comment on um, Grindr last year when um, someone found out um, that I was, was Aboriginal through the, you know, the course of the conversation and they made the observation, um, I think I tweeted about it, something about, um, you know, because I often identify, I don't say I'm Aboriginal, I say I'm Wiradjuri because that means that if they don't know what Wiradjuri is, that means they have to go and Google it, so therefore they have to do some work. And I say, you know, I'm Wiradjuri, and then they come back and said something along the lines that alluded to that I was, you would have been wild in bed and and, and just like that. that is so offensive. Like some people might take that as a compliment, but it's actually um, pointing to, I guess, this exotic notion of what a what a, a an Aboriginal person is it bought, it draws on tropes of um, the noble savage that we're savage to somehow wild um, it's this whole kind of jungle fever um, racial trope that has been employed particularly against Aboriginal women like you know th- these we have you know encyclopedias of of experiences with this stuff it just is um i mean yes it you know people will say oh well at least you know that you you know you didn't you know sleep with a racist but it's just means that a lot of people and i know plenty of blackfellas who just won't engage with online dating platforms because they're just like too traumatized because they just can't um put themselves out there and be dehumanized on a daily basis in that environment it just sounds so traumatic and it must just, you know, create so much internalised homophobia as well. You know, like it must be incredibly difficult to just reconcile that level of abuse from, from our own community. It sounds like a form of apartheid almost, doesn't it? Yeah, and I, I mean, I think we we can't be afraid to call it what it is and I think that, you know, there will be people who are outraged to say that our community is not, not racist, our community doesn't discriminate, but then how much of those people have experienced those things? Well, they, they can't speak for us. We, we're not lying. We're not making this up. This, is, this occurs to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people all the time. Um, the, um, in terms of, I mean, the responses, I think we have good support networks. We, we, we lift each other up. We share our experiences in terms of other, you know, queer black followers. We, we talk to one another and think, you know, Oh gosh, what, what's happened to you? Like, and it sounds a little defeatist, but it's not. It's our way of processing um, this trauma so that it do- allows us to live, you know, our lives um, in some, you know, in, you know, I'm not going to be uh, completely uh, depressing, but we, you know, have to find a way to process this trauma because we've got so many other responsibilities. We've got community, we've got family, we've got work, we've got all these other things that we're, we're thinking of, um, activism for many of us that, um, requires us to be strong and resilient. So our most important strength in that regard is having um, other queer black fellows to share our experiences with so that we don't normalise it, but we find ways to express ourselves um, and talk about those things or we don't talk about them at all because we don't have to explain it because we know what it's like. And there must be some real contentment that comes from that peer support. It must be wonderful. It's incredible, and I think queer black fellow communities are, you know, <laughs> I particularly when I've lived regionally and, and we've only had a very small, um, you know, queer black community, which is mostly my relatives, um, it's then going to the city and having, you know, so many other 
queer black fellas around. It's it is one of the most uplifting and beautiful things that I can possibly describe. Having um, other queer black fellas around you twenty four seven. It's it's an actual absolute gift. And of course, you must have really encountered that as well through your drag performances as well, and the sisterhood that revolves around that. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yes, yes, and you'll be pleased to know that uh, the House of Fork is looking at a at a, at a, a reconvening for 2020 at some point. Yeah, you know, having you know, it's been our saving grace um, in the sense out here in in regional kind of New South Wales, Victoria, and having. Um, my, my drag sisters, one who is my cousin and, and the other who's a very um, important figure in my life um, as, a, as a mentor and, and cultural kind of anchor. Um, we, yeah, like it's, yeah, really important that, you know, we have one another, particularly where uh, in regional communities um, you can be isolated a lot more, you can be excluded a lot more. So we're, we use it as a, our drag performance as a couple of things. It's a way to um, bring some joy for our community because um, that's who we do it for. We perform, you know, with our um, with with the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community here in Albury Wodonga in mind, um, and also just to to demonstrate that black fellas can do anything. Like we are such incredible, successful people in so many different ways, and and drag is just an element of our expression of that. Mitch Hibbins, thank you so much for chatting with me on 3CR today. It's been absolutely wonderful and so insightful hearing your thoughts. Thank you so much. Thanks, James. Great to be with you. You can see that this country is covered in the blood of Aboriginal people, the length and breadth of it. Australia is a part of an undeclared war and a secret invasion. And it began 250 years ago this year. Now, we have a country that's built on lies, deceit, fraud, propaganda and race hatred indoctrination. Now it's been 250 years of us being oppressed in our own land, brutally. We might be oppressed but we understand what freedom is and we fight for it every day and we've resisted this occupation since day one. And I predict colonialism, capitalism, imperialism is going to get knocked out cold by about mid this year. Tricia, your station in struggle and solidarity. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au. would like to thank Thornharbour Health for their financial support of this program. Thornharbour Health envisions a healthy future for our gender, sex and sexuality diverse communities, a future without HIV and a future where all people live with dignity and respect. To find out more about them, search Thornharbour Health on your search engine or find them on Facebook. 